Blog Talk Radio. Live from San Diego, California. Welcome to This Week in Accountable Care, brought to you by Zanate Media, publishers of ACOWatch.com, a go to resource monitoring the birth of the accountable care industry. I'm your host and producer of the show, Greg Masters, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru. And we are broadcasting on Wednesday, November the 14th, 2012. And it is just almost too much to swallow that we are staring at the year 2013 just six weeks out. I, I just can't believe how time is flying here. So um, on today's show, uh, we are in for a treat. I am speaking with a, uh, I, I'm calling it principal in the re Invention efforts underway at one of the country's major players in the health plan and health insurance marketplace, and that is Charles Kennedy, MD, who is the CEO of the Accountable Care Solutions Group at Aetna, a leading global diversified health benefits company. Uh, in his capacity, uh, Dr. Kennedy leads a business segment focusing on collaborating with high-quality health systems to implement new accountable care models designed to drive higher quality, greater coordination, and offer an overall better patient care experience. That's an ambitious agenda, but one that we must pursue nonetheless. Dr. Kennedy is a recognized expert in healthcare and health information technology. He was a founding commissioner of the Certification Commission for Health Information Technology, CCHIT, the first organization recognized by the federal government to certify EMRs and EHRs. And we are, and he's currently the health insurance industry representative on the HIT Policy Committee, a federal advisory committee that is guiding the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services policies to allocate the $40 billion in federal funding for health information technology deployment. I met Dr. Kennedy at the recently concluded Third National ACO Congress in Beverly Hills, California, following uh, a very interesting talk titled Evolving Towards the Accountable Care Future, Realistically Realizing the Vision of Reform. And we are not yet seeing Dr. Kennedy in our caller queue here on the show, so I will take a, a few moments and uh, give you a little perspective on the Congress and the context for the chat today with him, because there's uh, an awful lot going on in <laughs> what I'm calling ACO-dom. And if you haven't had a chance to uh, check out the last uh, couple of posts on acowatch.com, I would I would encourage you to do so. Um, one of them is 
uh, on the uh, kind of a summary of the uh, some key takeaway points from the conference, the Congress, the ACO Congress, and it, I titled this, uh, and I really borrowed it from Dr. Jay Crossan from Kaiser, um, and he had in one of his slides the question of, well, if the ACO idea fails, then really what's next? And uh, the slide that followed that question was essentially, you know, a, uh, uh, I guess a metalsmith who's sharpening the tool of an axe that he's about ready to to weave onto something. And, of course, we're really talking about the, I believe, up to a 27% reduction in, in rates that will come down the pike uh, absent some agreement around this sequestration, which, which we're looking at. And everyone is now referring to as the fiscal cliff. And... Um, we're now beyond the election and, and know that President Obama has another four years and that the Affordable, Affordable Care Act will stand and many of the provisions that have been put on hold are now going to be parsed out and absorbed um, by the provider community in earnest. So the other post here uh, is I titled the Smart Money ACOs and risk-savvy medical managers. I wanted to answer the question because there is a high noise-to-signal ratio out there in the marketplace on this question of uh, accountable care organizations, accountable care, and all of the transformational efforts that you could roll up uh, under that, that the rubric of, of change, including patient-centered medical homes, innovative direct practice networks that are tied together in some geographic form to offer um, employers access to alternative delivery systems. And um, it's tough to get a, a real solid reading on where the net opinion is of those who might be considered to be the smart money crowd or where they stand relative to ACOs. So I, I put that question to essentially two entities that represent, uh, I would characterize the best and brightest thinking in the clinical risk management business, uh, that being in this order, the a AMGA, the American Group uh, Practice Association and Group Medical Association and the California Association of Physician groups, CAPG, and there is some overlap, but CAPG is just California. And I pose that question to Donald Crane, who is their CEO, and we got a fairly uh, explicit uh, response from Donald, and he said that he's bullish, and the association is bullish on the ACO model. In fact, they think of themselves as members in CAPG as de facto ACE fighters, even though most of them are built, if you will, on what he called an HMO chassis, as opposed to the fee-for-service domain. Nonetheless, uh, they went on to basically make note of the fact that and quite a few of their members, actually six out of the 30, uh, 32 pioneers uh, in the CMS ACO program are in California, and they include the Sharp Healthcare System, the Heritage ACO, Dr. Merkin and Company, Monarch Healthcare, Healthcare Partners, and 
Prime Care, also known as North American Medical Management, all here in the southern side of things, and then in the Bay Area, Brown and Tolan. So they've made a commitment in a big way to the ACO model. And um, yet there are, uh, you might say these are the, the proponents in the bullish camp that there are detractors. There are those who, who basically say that, uh, I don't know if they're, they're continuing to label ACOs as unicorns, that they're mystical, mythical entities. Um, but there's doubt about a, this cost benefit, a is going to cost a fair amount and they're widely uh, expressed ranges about the cost of standing up an ACO to the net benefit realized year one, year two, year three, uh, that there's a disproportionate relationship to the cost of standing up an ACO ultimately to what the benefit and the return would be from from fielding it. And the kind of things you hear are, you know, it's HMO light, it's it's too little, it's too weak, it's too late, it's just going to fail. So, uh, you know, maybe with those as the polls in the debate on the spectrum of opinion, um, that's kind of where we stand. So uh, bottom line, my sense is, and, and we didn't include in this little discussion about where's the smart money uh, on ACOs, we didn't in- include the entrepreneurial group out there. Um, this is just, these are just provider groups. If you add in the likes of Lumeris, as an example, uh, as well as some of the other um in some cases, private, some cases, venture-backed companies that are performing a, for those of you familiar with the term PPMC, the Physician Practice Management Company of the 90s, uh, there's a V1.0 or 2.0 version out there now, which is really driving the formation of accountable care organizations. And uh, some of that is... Uh, and that wasn't germane necessarily to AMGA and CAPG because they're sophisticated risk managers and they more often than not have that in-house expertise, whereas the the balance of the population out there, the less sophisticated, if you will, and it's not a slam, it's just simply they're just less involved in, the, in, in having the culture and having the infrastructure, including the leadership, around making risk arrangements work from contracting to implementation. You've got a bunch of groups now in the mix who have come through the ACO program via, for instance, the advanced payment model, which is designed for physician-led and rural-type situations where ACO funds the startup, or excuse me, these funds are startup funds to stand up the, the ACO. But you have, may in some cases have IPAs, that some of whom may have been dormant for a while, uh, may have just been passively shuffling through messenger model arrangements, contracts between health insurance companies, health plans, and their contracted physicians. Some of these are getting dusted off the uh, shelves now, and they're reengaging from an ACO perspective because they're well positioned. And um, one of the one of the uh, references made in the article, actually in the blog post, that was uh, affirming the value proposition of the ACO had to do with one of the private arrangements or commercial um, contracts, actually with a an IPA in the state of Maine uh, that is contracting with Medicare for the Medicare Advantage program uh, by the name of Nova Health. Oh, 
And I think we may have just witnessed the appearance of Dr. Kennedy. Hold on. Hold on. Yes, I'm here. I'm sorry I'm oh, late, is, but the time is, got away from me. Is that you? Okay, good, good. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, I was just, uh, you know, buying a little bit of time, hopefully, hoping that you would show up. So I, I, I gave your background. And uh, let's just start with... Um, uh, um, I, I want to get into the mission of the Accountable Care Solutions Group and the gist of your message to the ACO Congress, but but maybe you could clarify something. First up, Aetna's CEO, Mark Bertolini, caused a bit of a stir uh, at HIMSS uh, 2012 in Las Vegas, and, and actually he predated that at Health 2.0 a couple of years ago, but he made a series of co- quotes that have since been attributed to him and I'll paraphrase here that uh, essentially, absent a paradigm shift, Aetna and traditional health insurance uh, business model or the legacy players for that matter are at the risk of extinction, extinction, and that moreover his goal at Aetna is to put that legacy industry out of business. So my opening question to you, <laughs> there are two, is this an accurate characterization for the reposition of repositioning efforts underway at Aetna, and is it an appropriate context for what you're doing in the Accountable Care Solutions Group? Oh, sure. That's an easy one. Um, Absolutely, um, this is a true statement. Um, And let me explain to you why. Um, If you look at the total debt and unfunded obligations of the United States, it's on the order of $70 trillion dollars. And if you look at the gross domestic product of the entire world, it's actually less than that. The point is that the federal government has finally reached a point where it simply can't afford to run the kind of deficits that it's run in the past. The number one driver of the federal deficit by far is Medicare. So the federal government has to deal with Medicare because it is an economic reality. Now, we all know that fee-for-service medicine is a driver of this, that, you know, for all the reasons we, we all know, the more you do, the more intense things you do, the more you make. If you're efficient, you are actually penalized, etc. cetera. Um, and so if you look at where the federal government is going through CMMI and some of the payment innovations, bundled payments, gain share, all of those initiatives um, indicate that fee-for-service medicine is going to become uh, less and less common. And what's going to replace it is a different way of doing business. Look at a traditional health plan. Its service, its core service, is processing claims in support of fee-for-service medicine. So what you're going to see, uh, we believe, is a reinvention of what a health plan is. And to the extent that that reinvention creates a better mousetrap, Um, you will absolutely see those older fee-for-service type of infrastructures become less and less relevant, less and less valuable, and new infrastructures focused on care coordination, um, clinical information sharing, evidence-based medicine, those are going to become more and more valuable, and Aetna is trying to be at the forefront of this evolution. So how does that then drive what you're doing in the Accountable Care Solutions Group? What what are some of the programs that you're baking there? Sure. Well, we are really the, the I, uh, 
lack of a better word, the tip of the spear in converting Aetna from a traditional insurance company to more of a financial service and health service business. Um, so what we do is partner with delivery systems with the specific intent of helping them through this conversion. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, our relationships with delivery systems are usually five years, minimum three years. And what we do is we form a collaboration because at the end of the day, what's going to happen is your traditional delivery system, like you know, we really even can't call hospitals and their medical staff delivery systems. They're really an amalgamation of care providers. That amalgamation is eventually going to become a delivery system where the care is coordinated, where duplicate care services are reduced, where technology is um, uh, supports uh, care coordination programs as well as more frequent provision of evidence-based medicine and where efficiency and effectiveness become paramount. Um, and so what we do is offer a one-stop shop for the transformation. Um, we have the health information technology through um, some new enhancements to our active health and medicity uh, and triage subsidiary. Um, we have the traditional health plan capabilities, uh, pricing, actuarial, um, administrative support um, that these delivery systems need. Um, we also have a consulting division so that we literally take individuals um, who are um, on our staff and they actually go out to the delivery system and support all of the necessary change management, technology implementation, care management program implementations that are necessary. And then we offer uh, a couple of business model innovations. One is what we call private label health plans. So the basic idea is if you create a delivery system out of a set of hospitals and doctors, we actually allow that um, collection of services to be offered as a product. And what that does is set in motion traditional free market principles. The more efficient the delivery system becomes, they either keep a higher margin or they can lower their price and enjoy more volume coming their way. So we offer private label health plans, and we also support governmental programs, so uh, Medicare shared savings programs. We actually will support um, a delivery system's application to become a part of the Medicare shared savings program, uh, and we will administer the necessary programs for them to be able to um, really make a bit of a windfall in the near term uh, based on converting the Medicare program from very inefficient fee-for-service to um, more of a coordinated gain-share type of approach. So we have this this recognition that, you know, legacy health insurers have a business model that is uh, on its way out, that there's an exploration of what a value-added relationship might look like in the new and improved version of health benefit companies. We have what you then go on to describe as a perfect storm uh, that providers, typically hospitals, as nubs of local delivery systems, are looking at. What did you mean by the perfect storm idea? Are you there? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I, I, what I mean by the um, perfect storm is 
that there are the macroeconomic forces that I mentioned at the federal level. There's also more microeconomic forces happening at the local level. And what I mean by that is most of our existing ACL customers, um, when they form an ACL, we generally ask them, well, why did you want to form an ACL with us? And several of them have hauled out uh, various analyses. And what they typically show is that traditionally a hospital has made money off of their commercial book of business, HMLPPO, and it's generally lost money off of their government, governmental book of business, Medicare, Medicaid. This is the traditional cost shift. Right? The problem is that when you then look at the volume of cases that they're getting, they're seeing reductions in the commercial lines of business, HMLPPO, and increases in the governmental lines of business, Medicare, Medicaid, and, and Medicare Advantage. So the result is their ability to do the traditional cost shift is ending within a foreseeable uh, time period. And on top of that, healthcare reform only pours gasoline on this fire for them. So they're looking for a new business model. They're looking for a new way to make their economics work so that they can prosper and be financially sustainable. So you think about that at a micro level. You think about what's going on at the federal government at a macro level, and then you look at the new health information technologies that are being deployed. And although traditional EMRs and health information exchanges haven't really proven yet that they reduce cost or improve quality very much, there are some very interesting new technologies um, that we're taking advantage of. Um, that actually offer a much stronger foundation for quality and cost improvement. And I think it's those forces, technology as a new, new technology as a way to improve performance, and then the economic forces I talked about previously. So, so that's clearly what's different this time versus what we saw in the 80s and 90s, the technology right. angle. Yeah. I, I think I think that's part of it. I think the other thing is that we actually have a lot more experience with our care management programs. So if you look at um, the care management programs that used to be available in the 80s and 90s, um, they weren't as advanced as what we have today. Um, in fact, um, for anyone who's interested, if you look at the um, September issue of Health Affairs, we published a study where we looked at a particular medical group who was taking care of some of our Medicare Advantage uh, patients who were part of one of our care management innovations. And what we found was that that particular medical group was able to, it's called Nova Intermed, they're up in Maine, um, you know, very uh, typical uh, medical group, not particularly large. And what we found was that they were able to provide higher quality care with higher satisfaction scores at a cost that was anywhere from 165 to 33% lower, not just of unmanaged Medicare, but lower than other Medicare-managed enrollees. Um, in other words, when you adjusted for the benefits and you had comparable levels of age and comorbidities, we were still able to show a 165 to 33% reduction in cost. 
So I don't think those kinds of care management programs were in as advanced a stage uh, back in the 90s. So I do think what's new this time is better care management and better technology. Yeah. So that, that's really the other piece is is the evolution and and the increased uh, increasing skill sets and confidence levels that have come up in in case management and the like. But clearly, that perfect storm is is the combination of all the above plus the end of cost shifting, where you can't you know uh, shift uh, what you were losing on your government business over to the private pay marketplace because that's just essentially eroding. And now they really have to step up and find a way to manage differently and more effectively. Well, well, that's exactly right. And by the way, I don't predict success for the majority of organizations who try to go down this path. Um, I think that when you look at the traditional uh, skill sets that a hospital has, has had to have, efficiency and effectiveness and the ability to manage a population is not something they've really ever had to deal with before. And so my experience in the market is that there are a lot of organizations, even right now, that are making significant errors, uh, at least in our view, uh, as to how to be successful in this new world. So I, I do think you're going to see some pretty significant changes in the industry. There's going to be some who make very good decisions and find themselves more successful than they were previously, but I do think there's going to be quite a few organizations that buy the wrong technology, don't understand the requirements for the care management program, and actually hurt their organization quite a bit. Yeah, I, I was very uh, interested by the the savings that were reported in that article that you just referred to. In fact, I incorporated it in a blog post on where you know our ACOs. HMO light, or are they the DNA of the transformation? It's interesting that with Nova Health, um, which is an IPA in Portland, Maine, uh, and some might say that an IPA is not necessarily the bastion of high, highly, you know, high risk savvy physicians who know how to manage risk, but more often than not, it's a it's it's layered on top of a traditional fee-for-service uh, medical community with some infrastructure to manage risk. And if an IPA can deliver 50% fewer hospital bed days, 45% fewer admissions, and 50% fewer admissions than statewide unmanaged Medicare population experience, I'd say, oh, my God, <laughs> there's, there's the upside. <laughs> Well, yes, I mean, there's, well, now, recognize there is a lot of upside potential today, but the federal government is not going to let that upside continue forever. So there is a window of opportunity um, where medical groups and physicians and hospitals can actually make quite a bit of money in the near term and, and recognize that that program um, did not make use of our most advanced technology. This was kind of more of a brute force approach uh, using nurses that were embedded in the practices and doing many of these functions in a more uh, manual process. What we've done is take the learnings from that experience and embedded the learnings in our technology so that it can become more scalable and can reduce the time to market or uh, how much effort we have to put in 
in setting up additional medical groups and IPAs. But you're absolutely right. It is kind of an oh-my-God realization, and there are um, some real opportunities to do quite well financially in the near term. Right. So we're actually coming up um, close to the end of the broadcast, and uh, I, I'm reviewing your, your presentation at the Congress, and, and you've outlined what I'm calling mission-critical provider changes, one through four, one, clinical integration to optimize workflow, two, technology that innovatively reduces cost, increases quality, improves both convenience and access, care management, which you just talked about, and finally, a relentless focus a relentless focus on prevention and early detection outcomes. That That's sort of the recipe. Now, uh, y y some of the names that are coming up on these ACO and related collaborations that you've worked out is uh, you know, Sharp, Carillion, Banner, Innova, Prime Care, Emory, and the like. Uh, 11 signed ACO arrangements, three technology-enabled deals, 62 Medicare Advantage collaborations, five multi-payer, 85 Medicaid, PCMHs, Two statewide Texas and uh, Texas and, and Maine ACOs and 200 plus in the pipeline. So clearly there's a demand, and unfortunately, I have to. Um, I'm wondering if we might be able to to get you back to to maybe talk a little bit further about some of the programs in detail because I think we just uh, just scratched the surface here. There's so much more I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I'd be more than happy to, and next time I promise I'll be on time. But uh, we are excited about what we're doing. We think we are at the beginning of a transformation of, uh, of the American healthcare system, and we actually think it's going to be in a much better place. Um, we'll achieve the triple aim, uh, improve quality, reduce cost, and have greater patient convenience and satisfaction, and, and we do think that's uh, all within our reach. Well, there you have it. I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Charles Kennedy, CEO of Aetna's Accountable Care Solutions Group. We do this weekly on This Week in Accountable Care. Please join us next week at our regular time on Wednesday noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, and we will have another thought leader in the HealthCan Transformer lineup. And for now, this is Greg Masters saying bye now, and thank you so much, Dr. Kennedy. Thank you. Bye-bye.